0: Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back, Fran Stans. Just before we get started, we have some announcements. As always, thank you for being a part of the group. Speaking of the group, I changed the link. And if anyone wants to join, please message someone in the group or myself, and I will send you the link that will allow you to join. Regarding this episode, I want to preface with the fact that the Orthodox Conundrum, which is our sister or brother podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, has released a follow-up episode on the teacher shortage, which is the topic for our episode today. Make sure you check out that follow-up episode on Orthodox Conundrum because we did not mention it on this episode because it wasn't released at the time of our recording. We have our last round robin for today. So look for the promo toward the end of this episode. I wanna thank Hanela Felig for organizing this round robin where we got to feature seven other female podcasters, Jewish podcasters on this podcast. And I would love to know if you tried any of them out and if you like them. So hit me up, I'd love to hear. One more last announcement before we get started. I did not mention in the No More Silence episode that was released last week for Tish above that the voice was altered and the guest was in fact a woman I know many people reached out saying they were confused. Yes, we alter voices here to protect the anonymity of our guests. And if that helps you feel more comfortable to volunteer your story, whether it is a No More Silence episode or something completely different, that is very private, vulnerable to share, please have in mind this is an option. You don't have to share your name. You can have your voice altered, and yet you still can have a voice and share your story. So we'll be getting started. Hope you have a wonderful week. Hope you join the group if you haven't yet, and let's continue the conversation there. Without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, Fran I am so excited for today's episode because I will share a little bit about myself with you throughout this episode, some of my biases and how they've changed. And I just want to thank Olivia Friedman, our guest today, for bringing this topic to our attention. So welcome to the show, Olivia. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I've been following your blog. Not that I've been reading it, but I know about it and I know you found your husband through it. What, 15 years ago?
1: We had our 11-year... Uh, anniversary. So Muscles yeah, up. thank you.
0: You've been out there really grabbing onto whatever issues are current and hot and speaking about them and being very vocal about it. So I'm so excited. I finally got you onto the show with a topic that you decided you are getting all the podcasts to talk about. So this is the second podcast right now to cover this issue. As you know, we are part of jewishcoffeehouse.com and Rabbi Scott Kahn on a previous episode did create a panel to talk about the teacher shortage and the issues with Jewish education and what we're facing going forward. So we're going to build on that episode and we'll have Olivia fill us in in a couple of minutes what was covered on this other podcast, which we'll link to in the show notes. So make sure to check that out if you'd like to go into depth but we're going to build on that. And we'll talk about the things that did not get mentioned then so we can all complement each other. Exactly. Yes. So Scott
1: Kahn, who's the host of the Orthodox Conundrum, had me on. And what happened was there was an article written in Jewish Action called The Great Teacher Shortage by Rachel Schwartzberg. And so what he did is he invited Rachel Schwartzberg and then veteran educators, Rabbi Moshe Simpovich, Rabbi Pesach Samer, and also me to come in as members of a panel to discuss And we discussed a lot of topics in that podcast, and here are some of them. We discussed salary transparency, where it's right now not the case in Orthodox Jewish based schools for the schools to be transparent about exactly what you would earn each year, depending on whether you have a certain degree or how many years of experience. We discussed tuition remission, which is when teachers who are employed by the school might get a discount on tuition. Some schools offer reciprocity as well. Others don't. And we discussed why that is, of course, something that is appreciated, but it isn't necessarily always as valuable as people assume. We talked a little bit about the different reasons that teachers leave, and we clarified that they don't all leave for the same reasons. There can be very different reasons as to why a teacher might leave, and it depends often about what kind of school they're employed in. Is it more a right-wing school, a left-wing school? We talked about women and women in leadership roles or women not in leadership roles, women who want to be in leadership roles, not necessarily getting the opportunities and some other topics as well. So I definitely encourage you to check
0: that out. And I am very excited to build on that today with you, Francisca. Thank you. So as promised, I'll fill you in on my personal biases. I grew up into a family where my mother literally founded a school from scratch and all the conversations after school, we're about school and my mother was on the phone, imagine a landline. So she's sitting in the kitchen and she's speaking to one teacher and then this teacher and this admin person. And, and then every couple of years, she's crying because another family's leaving and we're losing teachers. And before every school year, everyone's in a panic because we don't have enough teachers and how we're going to start the school year and they're not enough teachers. So this is, in a nutshell, <laughs> what my house environment was like. In all positive and negative ways, I was just fully traumatized from wanting to enter the education system, knowing how time consuming and stressful. Now I know as an adult, it was so fulfilling. And I've seen so many people go through the school education system that my parents created in Moscow, Russia. And so many of them are from and so many of them have connection to their Jewish identity. So not all of them became from. But the point is, this is such an integral part. And now that I have little kids myself, I am back in the or actually for the first time, I'm caring about what's happening in the education system. Who are the teachers? Where do I want to live? Which schools do I want to send my kids to? And why are people leaving the industry or not going into this industry? So that's my little background. So I I actually want to comment to something
1: you just said, where you talked about your mother and her role as an administrator. And I think that that's something that's worth covering as well, because it's important in these podcasts when we discuss teachers to not forget that administrators are human beings too. And one of the things that was discussed with me when I was talking to several different teachers is that the role of an administrator is really hard. And actually, at many Orthodox Jewish schools right now, there is high turnover in administrators where an administrator will get hired and then maybe there will be a vote of no confidence in them by the board within two years or so. And then they have to leave that school and they have to go either find a different job at a different school or move around. It's hard on them. It's hard on their kids. And their job is really a difficult job because they're trying to make the teachers happy. They have to, of course, interface with the students. They also have to interface with the the parent body. Exactly. And in, in all of this, they have to raise enough money, fundraise often in order for the school to run. And so the points that you were making about your mother's experience, I think that those points are, are not unique to your mother. I think that administrators in general, as much as we may critique or give suggestions as to what administrators could do better or could do differently and how we could help grow the school or make the school stronger and a better environment, I think it's still important to have hakarat ha and appreciate all the things that administrators do and all the challenges that they have to deal with and all the fires that they have to put out, because it really is a difficult job.
0: And she did teach in addition to being an administrator. See, That's nice. That, that was the passion, the teaching. Absolutely. And I think that's
1: actually one of the best things when you have an administrator who still has a foot in the door. They are still also in the classroom. I think, A, they earn credibility with the teachers because then the teachers feel like this person, they know what they're talking about. When they're asking me to do something, they're not asking me to do it, not understanding what a classroom environment is. They're also in the classroom. They're also teaching. So it builds their credibility. It makes them someone that people feel like their word has value. The suggestions that they have for professional development, professional growth has more value. So I think that is always the best, if possible, when you have the administrator who's also teaching in some capacity in the school. And it kind of it brings me to a different idea that people mentioned. People talked about how they want to feel like their administrators are in the trenches with them. And actually, it can breed a lot of resentment if they don't feel this way. So if, for example, people want to go meet with their administrators, but they see that what their administrator doing is something else that might even be valuable. Like, for example, let's say they're recording a podcast during that moment that could potentially be frustrating or breed resentment for the teachers who feel like your job right now when you're in the school building should really be to help us and to be available to us. Why are you doing this other thing instead? So on the note of I appreciate administrators, they have a very difficult job. I think it is also important for administrators to know and to hear, That the more that they can show that they're in the trenches with the teachers and that they're going through similar experience to the teachers, the more appreciation teachers will feel towards them and the more they will build on their own credibility.
0: Something I've heard many people say, and half of my family is in Chinach, maybe more than half, is that we say we value teachers. We say they are, you know, the foundation and core of our communities, but we don't show it. And how do we not show it? Their schedules are very rigid and unflexible. New mothers get minimal maternity leave and usually also faced with a lot of guilt. Oh, you need need maternity leave? Like, why do you have to have a baby now? Couldn't you wait till, you know, have it with Pesach? At least you'll have two weeks of Pesach. So there's that. And then parents feel like they could complain to at school. I know all of this was brought up on the panel as well. But there is this unconditional, sort of like what rabbis sign up for, except they're rabbis. And I'm sure they can complain plenty about how everyone just feels like they can come to them at any point with anything. But we just expect so much of our teachers and then th- they don't have as much resources yeah, in terms so, of time. Yes, and on, money. on that point,
1: exactly. I, I think that's such an important point kind on of teacher appreciation And how can you really show teacher appreciation? So obviously the number one thing, and we did discuss this on the other podcast, is money and salaries and making sure that as much as possible, you're prioritizing teachers and paying them a living wage, especially right now. Everything is going up. The prices in terms of inflation, the price of gas, it's crazy right now. And if people's salaries are already not necessarily matching what they need to be, plus you have that added stress, that can be very difficult and on that note, right, regarding how do you show teacher appreciation, what are different ways to demonstrate it? So it is it is money, but it's not all money. So here's an example. I wanted to include a quote from someone that I spoke with who talked about how what the school prioritizes is very important. So some of the feelings that teachers might have is that the student experience might be being prioritized at the expense of the teacher experience. And this is what she said. Every single year, there's a whole lot of student activities at this particular school, including a school-wide Shabbaton that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this is what she wanted done, right? She suggested, maybe we should cancel the school-wide Shabbaton and give teachers a bonus for cost of living and tell everyone that that's what the school is doing, making clear that they value the teachers. Some donor would probably give the money for the Shabbaton to happen anyway, But the school should be willing to prioritize teachers and to let teachers know that they're willing to do that. Now, that particular example may or may not speak to someone because I do know by talking to the director of development, sometimes money is tied up in interesting ways. Like you might have an endowment or you might have someone giving money where they give the money and it can only be used on student activities. And in that case, canceling the Shabbaton or whatever other student activity portion that exists might not help because that money would still not be able to use to increase teacher pay. But then it might be nice to be transparent with teachers and to let teachers know this is how the money is allocated. This is how the endowments work. We wish that we could do this for you. We wish that we could cancel the Shabbaton and give you bonuses that you deserve, but we can't. Because in the meantime, what happens is that the priorities that are being communicated to you is that. The student experience is worth everything, and it's worth even more than the teachers being able to manage with the current cost of living situation. And that's not something that administration means or wants to communicate to the teachers, but it is. So I think that transparency, that honesty, that willingness to potentially make some hard choices, that's all really important. And another piece to that in terms of teacher appreciation is, like you said, valuing teachers time. So this is a quote from someone as well. And this person said, why am I burned out right now? And many teachers were burned out in the wake of the pandemic, which could be its own separate discussion of what was expected of teachers during the pandemic and why was that so difficult. So this individual said, I'm burnt out because of all the other demands on me outside of the classroom, all the extra things that get piled on and keep getting piled on. The problem for me isn't boredom or stagnation it's being overwhelmed by all the myriad demands on my time and attention and emotion. And that can look different in different schools, where in some schools, maybe it's that the teacher is being asked to do all kinds of student activities programs or run an advisory or do other additional pieces in addition to their actual teaching responsibilities. And in other schools, it might just be what it is that they teach and how they teach it. Maybe they have lesson plans that they need to submit or they have other plans, like maybe things have to be run through certain like rules and regulations. It really depends on the school. But if we protect teachers' time, that's the biggest gift that you can give teachers. And people complain incessantly, right? Why did I have to go to this faculty meeting if it could all have been said in an email? If there's going to be something that's required of me, if I need to be at this faculty meeting in person, or if I need to be doing this additional thing that isn't actually teaching in the classroom or preparing for my lessons in the classroom, Why does it need to be done in this way? Like, is this the most valuable way to do it? And I think this goes back to transparency also. For example, let's say the point of the faculty meeting is team bonding, right? We want you as an entire faculty in the room so that you can bond with one another. Then I think it has to be structured in such a way that that point is being made and the activities that are occurring actually support that goal. Because otherwise, again, you're breeding resentment. So this issue of school priorities, how does the school prioritize? And is it does it seem fair and equitable? And also, what are the demands that are actually being made of teachers? And are those demands reasonable? Are they protecting teacher time? Those are both pieces of this question of how can you do better teacher appreciation? And then the third thing, which is a very recent thing that just came out in an online forum called Education Week, there's something called the stay interview, how it can help schools hold on to valued staff. And it was very interesting. Because HR experts were suggesting that when people wonder at the end of the year about teachers who turn in resignations and they think, what could I have done to get them to stay? Here's the issue. By the time employees have decided to move on, even if they agree to offer feedback in the form of an exit interview, they may not be eager to invest the time and energy into thoughtful feedback about why they're leaving. So an exit interview is not going to help you retain a valuable employee, but a stay interview might. And then they talk about what is a stay interview. And they argue that more schools should adopt this. A stay interview takes place during the school year, not at year's end. It's conducted primarily with employees that you don't want to lose. An effective stay interview can elicit powerful information from employees considered enthusiastic stayers. And you can use this input to ensure their continued job engagement. And they give some examples of the kinds of questions that they would ask in a stay interview. And these include, What do you look forward to when you come to work each day? If you were to consider leaving this position, why would that be? What factors may trigger a departure? And then, of course, once you get the information from the state interview for that particular teacher, then you have to act on it because it's going to feel even worse if I've been honest with you and I've told you the things that are on my mind and then the administration just decides to do nothing about them. But that's a very specific strategy that can be implemented where administrators can sit down and think. Who are my star teachers where if they left, the entire school would be affected in a negative way? And if those teachers exist, let me make sure to have those stay interviews with them during the year and not wait till the end of the year where I
0: might be surprised by them submitting a resignation. I would like to take this straight into practice. If we had to get rid of some of the tasks Besides for faculty meetings, let's say the faculty meetings are turned into some events, like go get your nails done with the female teachers or something that's more pampering and appreciative or maybe even development. Maybe teachers would like an education conference over Chavez. They could vote. I could think of report cards. I could think of PTO nights. Are they called PTA or PTO? I could never. Depends on the school. Yeah. Okay, good. I've heard a teacher say the child needs the parent and the teacher to communicate a little extra, which I'm sure they're doing anyway. So what are some other expectations and the jobs that are outside of the hourly salary expectation that we can potentially cut out to make teachers' time focused on the priorities or maybe even outsourcing some of the stuff to other people? So A lot of it depends on the particular
1: school and how the school days are set up. Some schools expect the teachers to be there from, let's say, eight to four. And what that means is that they have times of the day where they're teaching and then they have times of the day where they're not teaching and they have either prep periods where they're preparing for classes. Maybe they have office hours built in. Uh, There are other schools that have a model where they have the teachers teach all their classes in a row. So you've got you've taught five classes in a row. And then maybe you stay for one extra period, which could either be a prep period or office hours, and then you leave. So these are different models. And the one where you finish all of the classes in a row and you're done by, let's say, 1.30, that gives you part of your day to do whatever else you need to do, to do your grocery shopping and to do everything else. And so that's one model of protecting teachers' time. But it also means that if the students, for whatever reason, is not available during that particular Hour that the teacher has the office hours, then you have a problem because now that student is unable to meet. Obviously, there's creative solutions. Maybe you can meet on Zoom. Maybe you can meet by phone. But that's one model. It's just what's the structure of the day? How is the day even structured? But let's say we're dealing with the typical day where someone has to be there until 4 p.m. because of the way that their classes fall out. So the question is, are those prep periods really being used only for prep, or are our teachers being taken into other roles during those prep periods? Meaning? Are they often being asked to substitute other classes that are not their classes during those periods? Are they being asked to lead an advisory during those periods? Are they being asked to attend and be a role model during the mincha and shafris hours or blocks? In terms of how they submit work, is it just that they can prepare their lessons and come in and teach or is there a whole process where it needs to be approved by someone? Are there team meetings? How many team meetings are there? Is it a team meeting where you as the teacher feel like you're growing and it's an important professional development for you, like all of the ninth grade teachers of a particular subject, you're getting together for a valuable purpose. Or is it a team meeting where you're simply forced to be there because someone decided we think that you need to attend this team meeting? So
0: these are some of the things that come to mind. Here's another one. I find a lot with secular studies that there's a textbook and there's minimal prep for the teachers. Maybe I'm wrong. And when it comes to Judaic studies, Every teacher who starts, starts from scratch for some reason. And she's creating a curriculum for the 15 millionth time. Yeah. So there is a model that does exist
1: where someone is brought into a school and they're told, "Okay, in ninth grade, we teach this safe air. Here's the safe air. You teach it. Now, it has gotten somewhat better in that I think that there are people who have taught it before who are very willing and happy to share their materials with the other teachers. But it's still not a good model, meaning there's definitely value in having clear curricula that actually have expectations and goals. And what is it that you want to accomplish, especially when you're teaching Judaic studies? Another piece of it is what is it you're trying to do? And so this is unique, I think, to the Judaic studies teachers more so than the secular studies, although I do think the secular studies teachers do work very hard. And even if they have a textbook, there is still a lot of prep that can and does go into how they teach their materials. But when you're teaching in a Judaic studies classroom, there's the affective goal of I want this student to feel a love for Judaism, a love for God, a connection to religion. I want them to feel comfortable with me so that if they wanted to talk to me about any kind of issue or challenge that they might be having in their life or a they could. So there's that goal. But then there's also the goal of I want them to be able to read and translate Hebrew well and to be able to read and understand Rashi and Ramban and Radak and all the different commentators. And there's also a goal of just higher level critical thinking skills. I want them to really think about whatever, safer we're learning or whatever topic we're learning. Why is this important? To analyze well, to be able to consider how does this have value nowadays in 2022? And the issue is, again, time. It's very hard to divide up your class in such a way that you can give all of those goals equal time. You could certainly strive for that, but it tends to be that teachers will choose when I teach this class, especially to this level, and that's a whole other thing, most schools have tracking. They have honors and they have regulars, and maybe they have classes in between. Well, how do you determine who really belongs in honors? One way to do it their a facility with Hebrew. If this is someone who really speaks Hebrew on a high level or who understands and can read and translate and decode Hebrew at a high level, then they end up in honors. But another way to do that is to think about the critical thinking skills, because sometimes you have a student maybe coming from public school, let's say, or given the text in translation, they can have really interesting and insightful and creative and intelligent questions. And to put them in a lower level class into the regulars level class, it gets complicated because sure, the only real distinction maybe between the regulars class and the honors class should be how well are you able to read and translate the Hebrew? But in real life, that's not what I see. I often see, and this is in many schools, not in my particular school, but in many schools, that some of the more challenging students, students who might have ADD or ADHD or some other behavioral concerns, or maybe even an IEP 504, they will be in your class that might be considered the regulars class. And so that's a whole other level of who's learning, who's not learning. So going back to what teachers are supposed to do, and this was touched on a little bit in the podcast and definitely in the Jewish Action article being a teacher now, it's different than being a teacher, let's say 20 years ago, because we've had so much research done and we now know about the very different things that students might be dealing with and the struggles that they might be having. And we want to make sure that we're teaching all of them to the best of their ability. But that's very hard on the teacher. And even if you want to differentiate for students, you have to have the time to plan appropriately in order to differentiate for students. And do you even have that time? So I think protecting teachers' time and figuring out Is this a responsibility this teacher needs to take on? Is this a responsibility that this teacher wants to take on? It comes from a place of passion. Or is this a responsibility that we just decided that we think it's important, but we don't really know what we're going to get out of this meeting or what we're going to get out of this collaboration? That's the worst. Teachers really don't like to have their time given up to be forced into some kind of meeting collaboration where the goals are not clear. You don't know how you're going to meet the goals or it's not relevant to that. Like they don't teach that class or it's not the grade level that they do. And yet, for whatever
0: reason, they've suddenly been subsumed into it regardless. So there's a lot of responsibility on administration to pair the teachers with the jobs that they'll excel at and be good at and enjoy. Because everything else will just be dead energy and wasted time, resentment, and then retention loss. And on the teacher appreciation piece, and this is something else, the culture of a school and the
1: opportunities for growth for teachers, it's not always what people think. Sometimes people think of growth as you suddenly make it to a higher position, you have a higher title. Okay, I was a TNAF teacher, I became a TNAF department chair, for example. But obviously that's not the only way to grow. And something that I've heard from many different teachers is that what they love is the opportunity to bring their passion to the classroom, perhaps by teaching an elective course that is something that's of interest to them and meaningful to them. So Pesach Sommer talks about that in the podcast when he said he got the opportunity to teach a hashkafa class to eighth grade boys. And he loves hashkafa. He feels like it's so valuable and it just brings him joy. It brings him alive. And I heard that there's another school. It might be SAR who's also going to be having some of these classes where a teacher can design a class, it would be an ungraded class or an elective course on an area that they are passionate about and they can bring it to the students. I know Rabbi Gil Pearl is planning to do something similar with his option nine at his school called JLA. So that's a way to show teachers, we appreciate you. We're going to pay you to do this. Like this is going to be a real class, a real elective that students can take, but you can bring something that you're interested in teaching anyway, or that's your passion anyway, you can bring that to the students. And that's something that's just another creative piece that could help create that culture of feeling seen, feeling known, feeling valued, and feeling like I am taking something that's not only valuable to me, but it's actually valuable to the students. And my school understands that this passion of mine can be valuable to students and they're going to let me fly with it. They're going to let me grow.
0: What are ways for teachers of younger grades to feel, to have more development and growth? I think that you'd have to find out where
1: like how they feel, because I'm a high school teacher and I'm being totally upfront about, you know, my experience as a high school teacher. So I, I think it comes down to are they being supported sufficiently? So I've heard stories of a teacher where they can't leave on a bathroom break, for example because they have young kids in the room. And if they don't have assistant teachers or if they don't have another teacher in the room, then they can really be stuck until specials, let's say. Oh, it's library special. I can go drop my kid off at library. Now I can go to the bathroom, right? So that's on like the very lower end of the spectrum, just making sure that people have enough support that they can do basic things like that. But there can also be other things beyond that And it goes back to this differentiation piece. We have so many different students with so many different needs. This one might have to need OT. uh, This one might need PT, push out, pull in. This one needs enrichment. Are all the supports in place to help the teacher so that all that responsibility is not falling on them? You know, does, does the school have these people who can push in or pull out or be there to advise or to help? Is there someone who's going to help the teacher modify whatever it is they're teaching for the students who might have an IEP or 504? Or is it just going to be, well, this student needs modifications, you go do it on your own. So it comes back to, is there that support? And and do people feel supported? Because sometimes the support might exist in the school, but is there a way for teachers to access it? Is there a time that's built in for teachers to actually go meet with those people? Or is it like, well, as I'm running out of the building, let me quickly touch base with you about this issue. So how is it designed? And this is something for all schools, Are you designing for success? Are you designing a model where the teachers feel like they have support and they have access to the people they need to have access to, where the students feel like they're getting the support that they need, where the parents have a partnership with the school? And if that's not the case, and you're only going to know that's not the case, by the way, if you anonymously interview people, meaning you can't assume that a teacher who's feeling frustrated is just going to go to their administrator and tell them. If you're a certain kind of person who's not worried that your administrator will immediately resent you or fire you, then yes, you're going to be outspoken and you're going to go talk. But otherwise, what you really need is anonymous surveys, truly anonymous, that ask teachers to review how is my administrator performing? Where are the areas that I feel supported and where are the areas that I don't feel supported? What kinds of things would practically need to change that would make me feel more valued. These are all questions that if the school and the administrator wants to find out the answers, they can. But it has to be clear that there won't be retribution and that there won't be blowback on the teachers for being honest. And sometimes the people in charge assume that, of course, my culture is a very good and healthy and kind culture. And it's an open door policy. And anyone who wants can walk in and talk to me. And that's, I think, a dangerous assumption because people don't want to risk their jobs. So you have to design the culture. You have to design the system that you can be aware of the problems and the pain points. And then you can also be aware of, how can I work on solutions?
0: I want to comment on the growth within the jobs. I listened to a podcast on Freakonomics about managers and why are most managers bad? Basically, they do the best they can at the job they're great at. They excel. And then because you excelled, you get rewarded with a job that is different from what you're doing. And ultimately, because you don't excel at that, you don't keep getting promoted. <laughs> so you plateau at the job that you don't want because if you excel, they reward you or punish you with a job that you're not good at, where you get stuck ultimately. So a design where. You get to continue doing what you're doing, but have more support or more privileges does sound like a growth plan that enriches and supports teachers instead of telling them administration is the only way up to maybe earn more money or have more respect or title in the school. Even when someone does end up in administration, this is something I spoke
1: about with uh, different teachers. There are some administrators who are extremely detail oriented and they know how to plan things. They know how to make things run. This goes back to being in the trenches with the teachers. So, these are the people that you can contact about nitty gritty, topless. What do I do? And there are other administrators who are idea people. They have wonderful ideas, they have visions. And what you really need is a marriage between both. You need a visionary who is also having an activator. Because if you've got too many idea people at the top of the school, then the teachers who are actually living the reality of what it's like to teach, in addition to every other responsibility that might be piling on where they've been asked to, Attend this Shabbaton and they've been asked to go to this team meeting and they've been asked to serve as a member of advisory and they're also supposed to do this professional development. All of that in addition, sometimes being compensated for it, sometimes not being compensated for it, but just being told, well, as a role model who cares about students, you're supposed to go. It feels very frustrating. Like, yes, you have all the visions, you have all the ideas. That's wonderful, but it has to actually make sense. It has to actually work. So I just think it's important that whoever is employed at the administrative level, remember. That there's the idea people, but there's also the activation people. You need them both. And they need to be very clear about their partnership so that the teachers will feel supported and they'll feel like there is someone to go to when they're having those problems that can't be solved by a grand vision for the school or for the Jewish people?
0: For some reason, it's super obvious in corporate culture and not super obvious sometimes in nonprofit slash education. Oh, for sure. And that really gets into how our managers trained. And this is something that I'm
1: very curious about. When someone gets to an administrative position, who mentors them and how do they end up getting trained? Meaning, is it just that another administrator in the school takes them under their wing and they say, okay, this is how you become an administrator at my particular Jewish day school? Well, here's the problem. That particular administrator will have their own strengths and weaknesses. So how do you know that they're not going to mentor the person in such a way that those strengths and weaknesses will just get passed on to that next person? I find that in the corporate world, there's actually programs that are all about how to be a good manager, how to be a successful manager, techniques for being a good manager. And I often wonder how many people have been through anything similar and this goes back to borrowing from other disciplines. Sometimes people in education assume that any good idea should come from within the education world. And they get resentful of someone saying, well, here's this good idea in business, and why don't we apply it to the education world? And I think that it's important to be open. I don't think that everything that you're going to read in Harvard Business Review is going to naturally fit in the nonprofit sector or in the education world. But there might be really good ideas about trainings or how to work with employees or how to learn to be a good manager that you could get not from attending a conference on how to be a good administrator, but maybe from attending a conference or a training on how to be a good manager. And these are things that aren't necessarily crossing the divide right now, but they could and that would enable a better school culture because you would have people who were trained not only from the previous administration or administrator, but from like ideas and theories in general, how to manage people and how to
0: manage them well. What I'd like to go into next is sort of intertwined with one of the comments that was made on the panel that the more yeshivish or right wing schools have a hard time finding Judaic studies teachers, whereas the secular studies, I think secular studies.
1: Yeah. She said, while modern Orthodox and out of town schools struggle to find Jewish studies teachers, the challenge facing Haredi schools in the tri-state area is quite different. In these schools, it's not a Limuday Kodesh issue at all, says so an expert in Jewish education. We are seeing a much greater challenge in general studies. As a rule, she explains, schools have Kodesh classes in the mornings, and those hours tend to be better for working mothers. So, Correct. yeah, so that was the Jewish action. Okay,
0: thanks for clarifying that. Using that as a preface to this question, how do we raise the next generation offering teaching, as a viable option and as a desired option for a career, instead of it being a default or a, oh, I know in more right-wing communities, very often you come back from seminary, don't think about college or whatever. You could just teach and and they're going to want you because there's a staffing shortage. How do we get the right teachers in the door? How do we get them to want to want to dedicate their life to it and hopefully stay with it?
1: So there is an interesting initiative now that seems to be targeted to modern Orthodox students. And I I think it might've been through talent educators or that might've been where I saw it. And it seems to be run through Part aids as well, where what they're doing is they're having students who are going for the gap year in Israel and who are in seminary or perhaps yeshiva as well. I think they started with seminary, who self-select into a group They learn about what it's like to be a Jewish educator, to be a teacher, and the impact that it has. It seems like there's a series of eight classes. I don't know enough about it to say more about what exactly is covered. But what they're thinking is that if you get to students early, if you get to them when they can be inspired still about the mission, then that might potentially make people excited and interested in becoming Judaic studies teachers. And if you think about it, some of the things in modern Orthodox schools that are taught in that kind of way, they lead to that kind of outcome. So for example, Aliyah is pushed strongly in most modern Orthodox schools. You should move to Israel. That's where you belong. That's where the Jews are. You can contribute. You can do national service. You can serve in the IDF. And so many students do end up making Aliyah. And so there's a possibility that it has to do with the way that it's being taught. If you make it a noble profession, if you make it something that There's constantly appreciation for the teachers. Perhaps that's one way. So something that I see, for example, is that in the more right-wing schools, when a mora or a rebbe enters the room, all the students stand up out of kavod and then they sit down again. And I'm not saying that we need to teach all the modern Orthodox kids necessarily, that they also must stand up out of kavod. But it goes to show how is it being perceived? How is it being perceived in the school? So there is one option, which is simply to focus on perception, to make it a more noble profession, something that people look at as this is how you can contribute. This is a calling. Like we're calling on you as members of the Jewish people to provide this service. The only thing is that I do think that eventually that will flame out, meaning you could get people Similar to how even now, there's a program called Teach for America. And what is Teach for America? That's where you recruit people, typically from top-tier universities, and you have them teach for at least two years, and sometimes they'll be really good at it, they'll be really passionate about it, and they will go into Kinoch in the long term. So you could certainly get a donor to create something like Teach for America, but for the Judaic studies teachers and or the secular studies who are teaching in Jewish day schools, like for that population. There are issues, however, with Teach for America where sometimes students who need a strong veteran teacher are getting this new teacher who comes with amazing passion and energy and excitement, but they haven't necessarily fully found themselves. They're not fully cultivated as a teacher yet. So even though I think that might be one approach, I don't think that it is a full approach. I don't think it would solve the issue. Unfortunately, I think in many ways, the money is the key. If we could find one big donor, the same way you have these big donors who will sponsor birthright trips, it's a passion for them and they'll be the money behind it. So if you could find one big donor where their big concern, their big issue is teacher salaries and that's what they're willing to focus on, then maybe you have teachers paid a salary where it makes sense for them to continue in the profession that's how they would stay. Maybe there's people out there who have to focus on this as an issue, as something that when we find people who want to donate to various causes, maybe this should become someone's main cause. There's also other ideas, like for example, in the Chicago community, we have something called the Kahila Fund. And the idea behind the Kahila Fund is that the entire Kahila should be and is donating towards the cost of Jewish day schools, even if you don't have any kids in the school anymore. Your kids already grew up, They already graduated. It's viewed as a communal responsibility. We as a community need strong Jewish schools. We as a community will all donate to the Kahila Fund in order to offset the costs of the schools. So perhaps if more places around the country invested in a model like that, a Kahila Fund, where even people who are no longer sending kids, they're already older, they're senior citizens, whatever it may be, they were investing in this. That's something. I've also seen that there's a push for people that they leave in their will. When I die, in my will, I'm going to donate money to Federation, for example. I don't know. Maybe that's a replicable model for Jewish day schools that there's a push for when someone's passing away, what is your legacy? Maybe part of the legacy is that you donate the money and you donate the funds to Jewish day schools. So these are possibilities. I don't know that there's one solution. I wish there were.
0: But between a mix of these, I hope that there will be some positive movements and outcomes. A few comments. In Russia, we used to get up to show honor to our teachers. It was a Russian thing. And regarding the donor, I mean, the obvious thing that's in my head is people pay real estate taxes and those real estate taxes go to the public schools. And the government is that donor who is supplying and paying for all the staff in the school and the expenses of a school. And here you have so many Jewish communities who are paying their real estate taxes. And in addition, they're paying private school tuition and being asked to donate throughout the year and fundraise and leave your will and community Kehillah fund. And it's just Donate, donate to your school. And that's one of a million places that a person may want to donate to because when people hopefully they die at an old age, very often they want to donate to Bikur Holim or other organizations that were relevant to end of life, perhaps. But there's so many causes and it obviously, it's not sustainable.
1: I, I agree with you. I don't think that right now it's a sustainable model. And, I, and you're right. When people are already paying tax and then on top of that, they're being asked to donate to their kid's school and they're being asked to donate to the shul and they're being asked to pay membership
0: dues and so on. Jewish life has become extremely expensive. So I, you're right to the point where it's unfair if you're a responsible parent to send your kid. Assuming you want them to go and get educated, you're paying for them to get the experience to teach knowing that they're barely going to make what they need to make ends meet. And then you have families where both husband and wife are in education.
1: I hear you. And I think that this is exactly the reason that we're having these conversations, is that this needs to be seen as a communal issue, that the salaries are just not supporting the cost of living. And look, if you want it to be considered a new form of national service, that everyone sends their talented students to teach for two years and then they switch to a more lucrative job or profession. That's one model. But the problem is that what that means is that the people who are going to be teaching are unexperienced. Right. So the And then the other option that I've seen is that there are people who go into Jewish education who, thank God, they come from wealthy families. And so they're able to do Jewish education, even though the salary may not be so high because they're able to support themselves in other ways. But A, that leaves many of those people feeling not valued because they feel like the salary they earn is not equivalent to the amount of effort that they put in. And B, that's, again, not a long-term solution. You can't just decide that, oh, the families of the wealthy should go into Jewish education and nobody else will be able to turn this into a sustainable career or passion. So I I think that you're completely correct about the issues that are facing us and, and the problems that we see. And I don't know that there's one solution. I think that the communal responsibility, the communal funds, the kahila Fund, it's one model. But
0: even with that, there's still fundraising beyond that, even with that model existing. And there's so much more to cover, but I do want to bring in a few more points. Uh, I listened to the Chinuch 2.0 podcast, and there were a few interesting points that they brought up. One is the way schools can charge for tuition. They could separate Limude Kodesh from secular studies and get the Limudé Kodesh as a tax-deductible expense. I don't so know enough. I wish I did, I, but... Imagine if half the tuition was tax-deductible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's the premise. The, the premise. other option is, and it does not work so well with younger students who need more hands on deck, let's put it that way, less staffing, more technology use. For Blended learning,
1: hybrid models.
0: Yeah, to yeah. accommodate everyone on their level use as much technology as possible and as little human staff so the staff can actually get paid and everyone's job is done more efficiently i've seen that and i'm actually an educational technology
1: coordinator so i have a passion for using technology in education i think that tends to be harder than people realize it is just because the attention that the student has to pay to the program many of the students are already struggling with attention, even in a typical class, and all the more so if they're on a device. So I think adaptive learning, which is where it becomes harder or easier as you go through the program, or you get immediate feedback on what you need to work on, it it definitely has its uses. It can certainly be built in. I find it unlikely that on its own is going to make such a significant difference that you'll be able to get rid of so many staff. Like, There are definitely ways to make the model such that you have fewer staff. So for example, one local school, they'll have Judaic studies offered in the morning, but they'll also offer it in the afternoon. And this is a K to eight school. And what that means is that the same teachers are employed as a full time teacher and they don't have to hire two different sets of people or have additional teachers because what they'll have is like the first grade one B has Judaic studies in the morning. And then 1A has Judaic studies in the afternoon and the same with the secular studies teacher. So you hire fewer staff, you have them be full time.
0: So that's a model that I've seen where you can definitely get creative. So you're saying a lot of the staff is part time. Which is also not helpful for the employees. Well, it is helpful because they have more flexibility, perhaps. Right. So it depends on the school.
1: But I know for a fact that there are schools that deliberately hire part-time staff because then they're not mandated to give them health insurance, benefits, pension and so on. And so they'll deliberately keep people at a part-time level and not make them full-time because that's the only way that they feel that they can sustain their program, which is certainly not ideal. Maybe it's okay for those people. Maybe those people are at a place in their lives where they're retired or something and they only want part time teaching responsibilities. But it's certainly not always the case. And for some people, it can be very frustrating. They don't want to be only part time. They want to be full time, but the school won't hire them to be full time.
0: You brought up so many valid and interesting points. I hope this furthers the conversation around these topics and issues one thing, I don't know if it was mentioned on a panel, but for communities to subsidize housing for teachers to help them, because the more expensive it is to live in a community, sometimes it's harder to find teachers because the people living in the communities are probably in higher paying positions and doctors, lawyers, and then teachers can't afford to move into the community. That's 100% true. Yes. So that was discussed. And and this actually goes to What
1: can you offer people that isn't necessarily a salary raise? And there was a suggestion. Maybe the school even buys certain houses and maybe people have to pay rent to the school or maybe they get to use the house as long as they're employed by the school. But you have to think about it as actually a win-win because when you have a teacher who's embedded in the community, then that teacher is hopefully a role model to the students as well. They're available on Shabbat to go to the shul, to lead programs at the shul, to be speakers, give Shurim, especially if it's a Judaic studies teacher we're talking about, even though if you're a secular studies teacher, there's a lot of positive benefit. So if it was looked at as this person will bring benefit to the whole community, then there could certainly be a model where the housing could be subsidized and that would be very helpful.
0: Before we end I want to first thank you so much for doing this, for introducing this topic, even though I have been thinking about it and I've had a lot of changes in my thinking around teachers. So shout out to two teachers in my life today that I spend a lot of time around and they've exposed me to a lot of the issues that happen. And of course, there's so many more teachers. My mother-in-law is a teacher and I hear all the experiences. But my next door neighbor is Ahava Bauer and my aunt, Dr. Danielle Bloom, both teachers who are talking about education and what's the future for education, talking about their frustrations around thing, but talking about it from a place that they want it to be better because we need solutions. So I want to publicly thank them all for opening up my mind and, and thank you for bringing this topic here. I think this is the beginning or the continuation of these conversations to hopefully place more responsibility on the community to take care of our teachers and value our teachers and understand that if we do that, then that's how we're investing in our own children. So thank you so much. Thank you
1: so much. I really appreciate your having hosted me. And I too have benefited from many amazing teachers. And Dr. Danielle Bloom was actually my teacher. I benefited from her so much. So it's a pleasure to get to speak to you and to further the conversation on this topic.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And I know there are going to be so many teachers in my family and friends are going to be messaging me to tell me I didn't mention them. So I apologize in advance. And I want to ask you: you are very thought thought out person. If you had, if we did another episode, what were what would some of the topics be that you'd want to introduce or bring up on specifically education or in no, general? Anything, anything, anything. Jewish? Yeah.
1: So, well, the topics that are most uh, of that are, I guess, close to my heart are mental health and mental health specifically in Jewish day schools in the Jewish community. I have some specific ideas of ways that we can make sure students are being served generally beyond simply having social workers or psychologists in the school. I also think that sex education is very important at minimum education around consent and what that actually means, but also beyond that about sexuality as a holy thing and not just leaving it to the media to educate our children for us. Because nowadays in most modern Orthodox schools, students have smartphones, they have devices, they're watching Netflix. And if we're not having the conversation, then that conversation is coming to them through a variety of different sources that are not good for them. And I'm also really interested in gifted education. So talent development in students who show that they are above grade level sometimes significantly above grade level, how do we serve them better than we're currently serving them? Because I think that those are the students that often get left behind. People assume that, oh, they're going to be fine no matter what, because clearly they're very intelligent, and that is simply not correct.
0: Yeah, and if you want to listen to somebody like that, you can listen to Dr. Brook, who we just had for that SIVA episode, and we had her on for After My Unorthodox Life. Somebody who was unappreciated for her intellectual curiosity around Torah and Judaism. It was dismissed as something that's what men are supposed to be interested in, not women. Definitely there is an effect to not paying attention to those. So I'll have our audience vote potentially, and maybe we'll do a follow-up episode on some of those excellent topics that you brought up. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening until the end. Please make sure to follow the show, rate, review it, share it with your friends and family. And of course, join the WhatsApp group. You can message me to get added. Check out the other episodes on jewishcoffeehouse.com. And I'm Francisca. I help you with your podcasts. So make sure to reach out if that's something you're looking to start. Have a great week. Today's feature of the Round Robin is Drink It In podcast with Jordana. Here's the promo.
1: Hi, my name is Jordana and welcome to Drink It In The Podcast. I am an experienced educator with an engaging and entertaining way of interacting with others. I spent years working on providing thoughts that translate into inspiration. I have one very simple goal, get you inspired. This podcast is my latest endeavor as we discuss all kinds of interesting topics covering all genres. Come ride with us on the Drink It In podcast. What are you waiting for? Grab a glass, a cup of coffee, and let's get to it. Available everywhere podcasts are. Check out even more at maverickpodcasting.com.